there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Epcot Center opened in Orlando, Florida, and I was there. I stood in line for six hours for Spaceship Earth, and it was not worth it. On Broadway, Cats opened its legendary 18-year run at the Winter Garden Theater. President Ronald Reagan declared a war on drugs, which we all know was 100% successful, eliminating all drug use completely. Good job, (laughs) President Reagan. China announced they'd reach a population of one billion people, just as Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson released The Girl Is Mine. The Girl Is Mine. Coincidence? I think not. With a world as wild as that, we needed an equally wild lineup of films for October 1982. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie. Welcome back to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, it's me. Hello from Philadelphia. So, Scott, tomorrow is a big day. What's tomorrow? 1229. It is my birthday. We don't like to uh, use contemporary references on the show because people hopefully will be listening to the episode in like 10 or 12 years and they don't want to hear anything about what happened in December 2017. But we can stop and say happy birthday to Mr. Weinberg. Tomorrow I will be 31. Very excited. (laughs) I may not be able to continue recording. (laughs) Uh, If you would like to support the the birthday boy who is turning 21 tomorrow, you can... (laughs) Hit us up on our Patreon page where you can subscribe to our bonus episodes, including last week's Bill Hader conversation between Drew and um, Bill Hader. Didn't think that through. I like that it's almost its own show. Like 80s all over bonus show is so different than the actual 80s all over show. And I really like that. I like that every week it's a little different. I think that's cool. Speaking of, I want to take a quick moment to acknowledge that we are not perfect. Say oops, oops. I know that the illusion is very strong, but we occasionally make mistakes. And when that happens, we own up to the mistakes we make. And we say proudly, we pulled a boner. And guys, we did it again. On our last episode, uh, we were talking about movies that got pulled from theaters. And I mentioned Varsity Blues. It was, of course, the program which got pulled, and it got pulled because of the scene with the kid laying in the road and telling jokes or whatever. We also, we did it again. Uh, we brought it up at the beginning of the episode. We mentioned that we had forgotten to review Hell Night. We told you we would do Hell Night, and we forgot again. So at the end of tonight's episode, I promise I'm sorry. Finally, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to do it at the very end. I want to do it now. No, no. At the end. Make them wait for it. They've waited this long. Make it the dessert at the end of the episode. Uh, let me ask you before we get started. Was this month hard for you? 
there was something about this month that felt like all the gas went out. I can't even blame the movies entirely. I mean, some of these movies are truly terrible, but I can't blame just the movies. I hit a wall with one movie this month. I think it took me 11 viewings to get as far as I did, and I still didn't finish. I just tapped out finally, and I don't know that that's happened yet. Drew, let's just get rolling. We're going to cover all of the teen sex comedies, okay? Some of them are just so basic, generic, forgettable, and hollow. Just mentioning them is enough. Drew, do you have anything to add about going all the way? Nope. We talked last month about The Last American Virgin. You know, that is a movie where I feel like it's a hybrid of what I find repugnant about Porky's, but also what I like about Fast Times, and it falls somewhere in the middle there. The only thing I'll say about going all the way is there is a sense in this movie that the women have some agency, that they are in charge of their sexuality, and that that is a big debate in the film is whether or not you can pressure a girl into sex or whether or not you should or whether that's even appropriate in a relationship. I'll give the movie a little bit of credit for that. For the most part, the film feels like the hygiene video that Mystery Science Theater made fun of. It is ridiculously cheap in the way it tries to pack as much nudity as possible, and it's all that weird functional nudity where it's, I'm in a shower, so I'm naked. That seems like the cheapest excuse to stage a scene, but that's what this movie is. It's how many ways can we figure out to show women naked without it actually being sexual 99% of the time. Going all the way proves that, you know, when something is a big fat hit, this is how quickly the knockoffs come out. From there, we go all the way (laughs) to a a fairly interesting film I had never seen before starring Michael O'Keefe. It's called split image my name is rebecca i think i am in love with you she is the bait it's only a three-day weekend this is the trap this is not a prison day his mind is the target i was dead before i came to this place and for his family kidnapping mr setson this man is the only answer do you hear me danny i don't want to split image rated r now, this is the first of two of our Ted Kotcheff movies this month. I don't know if that was just a weird quirk of how, like, one movie took a while to get released, or the because clearly the other one is the big movie that came out for him this month. But this is a pretty good movie. Feels a little after school, especially, you know, when they, it seems like when an issue like abortion or cults or, or school violence or bullying, when these stories are become so prevalent in the news, you find that the earliest films about them are very tentative. They're not all that confident. Mm, let's dip our toe into a drama about, you know, cults and families losing a, a child to a cult. It's a real testament to what was on people's minds. Like, we're going to hit a run of movies coming up where there's a lot of satanic images and, and messages hidden in rock music. And there's a ton of that in the 80s because that was on people's minds. And it was this weird hysteria. Cults were a huge thing coming out of the late 70s and in the early 80s. I think there was such a panic from parents that your kid is going to be the kid that gets into the cult. And what do you do? And to some degree, this is meant to be the nightmare of the parents in the film. Brian Dennehy and Elizabeth Ashley are his mom and dad. I know a, a woman that we love deeply is in this film is playing kind of not not to be insensitive, but kind of like the bait. The wonderful Karen Allen, who is whenever Karen Allen pops up, we'll get to this in Starman. We'll get to this in Scrooge. Karen Allen should have been a megastar. She and Michael O'Keefe are a nice combination here. And I 
get it because she is exactly the kind of super appealing. When you say that she's used as a bait, that's exactly the way she's used in the movie. And she's the perfect bait because she is so bright and she's so charismatic. And she seems like somebody who has her shit completely together. And Michael O'Keefe as the kid, as Danny, and it's so hard for me in any movie where they're calling him Danny to not follow it up with Noonan. But they are a nice fit, and clearly the movie at some point switches from being the nightmare of the parents to being this story about how these two kids are going to get out of the cult with each other, and they've realized that they're what they were attracted to, not the cult. Sleazebag James Woods is pretty good as a uh, jittery, untrustworthy, sleazy deprogrammer who's actually kind of a good guy, but is on the surface kind of a sleazebag. Well, and knows what he's doing, but isn't afraid to be a piece of garbage to do it. Oddly uninteresting performance by Peter Fonda, of all people, as the cult leader. It's almost like the filmmakers were terrified to offend anyone. So the cult is the most vague, amorphous. They are so careful here to show you everything about the cult except the actual hook itself. But Fonda is disconnected and shows up in like sort of fits and starts. And you're right, never becomes a character, which is a problem. Yeah, you figure if you're going to have Peter Fonda as a cult leader, he's going to bring some of that either like oily charisma or intensity, and he's just kind of there. I thought it was interesting to see Brian Denny play so vulnerable because he is typically just a hard ass, and he cries in this. Now, that's what's great about it is they, they make comment to how big and blustery and, and intimidating Brian Denny is, and then they break him down later, and it's a, it's a great performance. I guess it's of interesting note that the film was, what, co-written by... Robert Mark Kamen. There's three different guys here who couldn't be more different as writers. And I'm fascinated by how these three guys ended up with this film. Because you've got Robert Kaufman, who is Freebie and the Bean and Love at First Bite and How to Beat the High Cost of Living. Like zany comedy stuff, almost entirely. Scott Spencer, who we talked about because of Endless Love, who writes that weird family shit and the hypocrisy between generations. And I see that in this film. Robert Mark Kamen, who we all know from Karate Kid, now the Luke Besson Factory, and who does a totally different kind of thing. All I can figure is he did the gymnastics, because that seems like that's his world. I do think that the casting of O'Keefe was a really smart idea for right when this happened, because by this point, he was Danny Noonan. He was the son of the great Santini. He was a kid who we had seen kind of stand up to bullies in movies and be unbreakable. That was kind of what was nice about him is his spirit was so big in those films that he was obviously somebody who uh, was stronger than these figures he bounced off of. So watching him crumble as the cult chips away at him, I thought was actually a pretty smart casting choice. So this is all based on obviously like things that actually happened. Let's make our transition now to the next story, which is a actual true story. Uh, heartbreaking vehicle for young Amy Madigan in her big debut performance. Terry Jean Moore was arrested. At 20, she fell in love with a prison guard. Fighting attack. Now she's fighting for the only right she has left. Then will you take a pregnancy test? Nobody's touching me. They're going to make you have an abortion. I'm going to have this baby. Love Child, a true story. Rated R. Movie starts out with uh, Amy Madigan and her uh, sleazy beau. They rob a guy at gunpoint, kidnap him and steal his car. She ends up getting busted, whereas he doesn't. And she ends up going to jail where she gets into more trouble, becomes friendly with a guard played by Bo Bridges. They make love. She gets pregnant. And what will happen 
to her love child. Now, it sounds like I'm being facetious, but this is actually a basic and straightforward earnest drama, but it's also a pretty good film. I think it hits a certain note early, and I think it kind of keeps hitting that note. For a movie that's called Love Child, the child seems to be relatively missing from the film. I, I get fighting to have your child in prison. I also get that logistically, you're in prison. It's kind of a story where I'm not sure where my sympathies lie, but if we're going to root for Terry Moore to have her, her baby in prison and to be able to stay the primary caregiver, I want to know more about what that child's life is going to be like, and I want to see the reality of that. I agree. It's a it's an, a good, interesting film that tells a, a challenging, true story, but it, the movie kind of ends just as the most interesting ideas are coming up. You know, there's like all these great arguments to be made that the film touches on towards the end but for the first hour or so it's just kind of an earnest soap opera amy madigan's performance is so raw and urgent that i was willing to look past these somewhat conventional trappings and and i was into her story i also loved seeing raya perlman loved seeing the late great margaret witten and one day at a times mackenzie phillips has a great couple of scenes I'm always happy to see actors like Mackenzie Phillips, who I think were very good actors who didn't quite catch the break or who, in her case, she had reasons she didn't work a lot. But I always love seeing those performances where we did get a glimpse of how good they could be. Uh, young Bo Bridges, quite good, starts out noble as the film goes on. His, his foundations start to crumble. But I dug this one. I didn't love it, but I'm glad I dug it up. Yeah. And uh, the guy, um, Larry Pierce, the uh, the director of it. He did a number of episodes of the Ghostbusters, not based on the one we know, but the old one with the monkey and everything else. And I've heard stories about this guy from Bob Burns, who was Tracy the Gorilla. He also directed a movie we're going to get into at the end of this decade that gives me hives knowing that I'm going to have to revisit. And that is the John Belushi film Wired. We got we got a while until we get there. But Larry Pierce, we're going to have some words, man. It's coming. You know what else is coming? The sender. Here, here are my notes. Super dull horror thriller about a suicidal weirdo who ends up in a psycho ward and may be the cause of some crazy telepathic hallucinations among the staff and Dr. Catherine Harold, directorial debut of Battlefield Earth's Roger Christian. I will say that any film is better with Catherine Harold in it automatically. What I thought was interesting was how, and I know I'm going to get his name wrong, but Zelko Ivanek, who plays the sender, we know him now as a character actor beyond compare. Like, that guy is terrific. He's even good in this, but... Literally, if you just showed me a photo of him from this and said, who is that? I wouldn't know it was him. And it's crazy how this is a guy whose face I've seen 50 million times. And yet in the sender, he's so young and he's so sort of doughy and unformed. It is unrecognizable to me. He is a baby in this movie. You know what else is doughy and unformed? What? This screenplay. There's one scene in this movie that gave me goosebumps. I'll, t I'll give it that much. It's uh, when he's being doctors are finally looking into this guy and what his powers are and his abilities are. And he responds in a certain way that is quite impressive and makes me wish that the film had maybe taken a little more, a few more chances. It's a premise in search of a plot. That's the th oh, big time, man. And if you watched Legion this year on FX, what they do on that show, I think, gets directly to the heart of what I think Roger Christian was trying to do in this I will say that I enjoyed seeing Paul Freeman show up. How did Paul Freeman not become like an Alan Rickman type? I know. How did he not work a ton? Because I love the authority he has, and I love the fact that he's able to play 
shady, but in a way that still makes him interesting, and you don't automatically tip to hating him. The sender has some good ideas and does deserve some credit for not going the typical body count route, but it does strain your patience. This next movie... We could do an entire bonus episode on this, Drew. And this movie, I feel like, is part of the ground zero of an industry that exists now that I am not crazy about. The celebration of aren't we better than every movie. This started life as a serious documentary, became something else because Paramount panicked, and the end result is the inert and bizarre... It came from Hollywood. This was a huge favorite among me and my friends. This and Terror in the Isles. This is basically five or six sketches by uh, Chita Chong, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, and Gilda Radner shot separately. And then intercut with montages of themed scenes from old bad movies and uh, a couple of really freaking good movies. Thank you very much. At first, it kind of seems like a celebration of bad films, and then they start talking over the footage. It is, as Drew said, the proto-Mystery Science Theater 3000. The Golden Turkey Awards was out by this point. The 50 Worst Movies of All Time, both of those books by the Medved Brothers. The Razzies had just started. So this was this sort of nascent celebration of the terrible. And what Mystery Science Theater did that is so brilliant that figured this out is when you watch a Mystery Science Theater movie and they've taken this insane art and they create something new around it, I will watch a Mystery Science Theater movie and they'll create an alternate narrative that runs during the film that suddenly makes the movie brilliant and amazing. And I find it almost transformative. This is simply, oh shit, look at all this stuff. Isn't it terrible? But quips are not necessarily insults. I mean, getting to watch Cheech and Chong make fun of Reefer Madness, that's historic. The montage stuff was all done as a documentary by Malcolm Leo and Andrew Salt that was just supposed to be that. And then when Paramount was looking at it and didn't really know what to do with it, they grafted all the comedian stuff on afterwards. So that was never actually the point. Yeah, from what I gathered, Michael Medved, who has become a conservative pundit of some repute, they disowned the movie. They wanted nothing to do with it. They were furious. Well, and his brother Harry runs Fandango now, and I think has gotten way far away from this terrible movies are our bread and butter thing. There's the whole section they do on Ed Wood. You can practically hear Karaszewski and Alexander watching that segment going, really? It's another moment that's worth seeing. John Candy doing a short tribute to Ed Wood. You've got Gilda Radner, who not given great material, but Gilda Radner, who did not do many films. And she is, you know, gets to be funny in a couple of sketches that have virtually nothing to do with the film you're watching. I felt happy seeing her be silly in a movie. It just felt nice. I found the Gilda stuff almost embarrassing, like the gorilla thing. The gorilla. Oh, dude, that's a fun. It's exactly a Saturday Night Live bit. The joke is she hears on the radio. There's a gorilla on the loose and the newscaster is telling her to lock up her doors and then t- like telling her to do things as if you can see her. I thought it was kind of funny. There's some really painful stuff, you know, like Dan Aykroyd in a bra. And, but the film also includes clips from The Fly, The Blob, Black Lagoon, and in my opinion, the most criminally underrated science fiction film of all time, 1957's The Incredible Shrinking Man, which is not by any definition a bad film. Remember, this was right around the time that colorization was starting to become a conversation. There was a sense that if it was black and white and if it was made for anything less than a giant budget, 
it was schlock and shit and it was to be made fun of. And that's part of what bugs me about this one is I do think all that stuff gets lumped together. And I do think there's a general dismissal of pretty much the entire history of science fiction and horror. Drew, what the fuck is that minstrel show in heaven sequence? Did you look it up? Dude, not only have I looked it up, but you're not going to be shocked to hear this. Your favorite person has always had some severe issues with race. Harry Knowles screened that at Buttonamathon. That's right. Oh, yep. And yeah. he showed it. He showed the whole movie at oh. uh, Buttonamathon, including you know, that I'm entire like, I'm ending. enjoying like, oh, giant monster and oh boy, awful special effect. 30 men in blackface in heaven singing. I'm like, oh my. Here's the thing. Like, I get the value that this had in terms of forcing you to track other stuff down. After we talked about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, I ended up in a conversation with a filmmaker and I asked him about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I said, were you the same way I was? And when you saw that movie, did it force you to then go track down films that were mentioned in it just so you could see what they were? I think generationally, if you saw Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid theatrically or near theatrically on video, it served that purpose for you. And this is another one that did that. All right, talking about movies that uh, got dug up, this thing was dead at a certain point, and then it has been restored for home video, and we now get a chance to go through the ashes and try and figure out what the hell happened on Hal Ashby's Looking to Get Out. You lost the whole nine grand. No, 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 Jerry. I lost 10 more on top of the nine. I'll get us out. Don't I always get us out? Yeah, for two weeks last July. How much money you got out here? Not much. Perfect. We're going to Vegas. We're over our heads here. That's what I mean. Why are movies about gambling almost uniformly fucking terrible movies? I have a lack of patience for movies about losers who court being losers. They're losers who encourage being losers. And they're losers who feel owed a win. Yeah, and and it's nonstop. This guy is pathetic from frame one. Uh, This guy being Alex Kovac, played by John Voight, who co-wrote the script with Al Schwartz. And it is a vanity piece. There's really almost no other way to put it. Our other gambling Vegas-themed movie this month is a totally different kind of vanity piece, but it's interesting that they're both disastrously badly constructed films. A lot of younger movie fans seem to think, oh, if I don't like the main character or like somebody in the movie, I can't like the movie. And I don't agree. I think you need to be able to at least relate to somebody. Not You don't have to like a character. The John Voight character is somebody that I would kick out of my house after five minutes. He takes advantage of his weird friend, Burt Young. He abandons and betrays people at the drop of a hat. He's a liar. He's, by all accounts, should have his legs broken because he legitimately owns money. And we're supposed to feel angry at these mobsters who threaten him. Talk about a singularly unappealing buddy comedy. When your buddy comedy is John Voight in I'm an obnoxious dickhead mode and Burt Young as the other half of the charismatic lead pair and by the way Burt Young looks like a boiled sloth in this film he is I will say that Burt Young occasionally seems to realize 
how generic and drab and pointless this movie is and weirds up his performance at moments where it's literally the only interesting thing on the screen at some points. That includes Anne-Margaret because she's given nothing to do. Oh, nothing. You're right. Burt Young every now and then. I God bless him. Burt Young, you are a terrific character actor, but part of why he was a terrific character actor is because... He looked like someone dropped a meatball in an ashtray. Oh, yeah, yeah. We know no disrespect, but the guy looked like a sweaty trash collector, and there's nothing by all... He looked like Gene Shalit's balls. I'm sure he was a sweet guy, but that's part of what he was cast for as like a kind of an oily, deceptive person. And in this movie, he just seems like there's moments where he goes over the top violent, and then there's moments where he gets oddly sweet and warm. The unpredictability of Burt Young is literally the only thing that kept me afloat. Well, that and I had to watch it for this fucking podcast. Hal Ashby, God bless him, was at a point in his career here. He was floundering. The age of the auteur was over and he was not being given room to be Hal Ashby for whatever that's worth. And you watch this thing and there's not anything about it that works totally. And I've seen this restored cut. I can't imagine what cutting it would do to it or make it any better or it's weird because it predates fear and loathing, but it feels like a fanfic remake of fear and loathing in Las Vegas. In a way, let's move on. We had James Woods earlier this month as a sleazy cult deprogrammer. And now we have James Woods again playing a sleazy prison guard in fast walking. Now, you see, I can offer this market. Dynamite smack, man. I mean, the best money can buy. It's so good you can get off just snorting it. And I got a guaranteed supply daily coming in six days a week. I can sell them the cap, the bag, the bundle, the bundle, the half load, nickel, dime, quarter tray bag, piece of the pill. You just call it and I've got it. Got lubes, crank, bombitas, coat, bam, black beauties, cartwheels, yellow jackets, reds, long greens, rainbows, beans, and STP and PCP and DMT and LSD and psilocybin and mescaline and THC, amphetamine, meth, biphetamine, phenobarbital, benzedrine, dexedrine, librium, secondol, demerol, goofballs, truck drivers, yellow stripes, strychnine, arsenic, anything. I deal anything except marijuana and hashish because I can't stand the smell of that shit. And for the ultimate thrill of your lifetime, I'll personally drill a little hole right in your head. You can see the light of the Lord shine in there. I'll be honest, never heard of this one. Uh, I'm surprised because it's James B. Harris as director. And James B. Harris, for those of you not aware of him, was uh, one of Stanley Kubrick's early producers. And I think a a real collaborator for him. And it is based on a novel about a semi-corrupt prison guard. He's not the worst of them. Like, he's a pot-dealing kind of... Uh, He's a pimp, dude. He's a fucking pimp. But he's not a racist. (laughs) Yeah, very true. And, like, you know, we said Burt Young was often cast for a certain look. And it's pretty interesting to note that in the same month, early in his career, James Woods as a fast-talking sleazebag, twice. This fits exactly into how he kind of nailed that persona down. It makes perfect sense as an early 80s James Woods performance. Fast Walking is, I believe, his nickname. I I think they call him that once or twice in the movie. It's kind of month in the life of a prison kind of thing. But there's also a vague subplot about... James Woods' sleazy cousin coming in and taking over their whole the racket. Yeah, because he's he works with his one cousin Susan Terrell running whores out of her convenience store. The best thing, and she's she's the best thing she, and she's from outer space, dude. As always, her, her first scene, 
Where is the rest of this energy? Dude, in the there's, movie? A, there's a scene where they just cut to the yard of the little like backing closed area behind the store. They just cut to that, and she's doing like a fashion show for Mexican day workers, and she's like wearing high heels and storming around and doing a number. It's the craziest cut to, and then she just kind of stops and looks over and goes, "All right, anyway," and continues <laughs> and continues with the scene. Susan Terrell always beams her performances in from other planets and god bless her man she's great at it i think fast walking is notable for one fascinating tidbit drew and you know what that is it's the only time you'll ever get to see m emmett walsh fully frontal nude dude i tweeted about it yesterday as i was watching the movie i said well i just saw m emmett walsh everything and uh, how's your day going and people were like not as good as yours i'm fat i also have a penis and i i would not have the bravery to do what he did in that movie where he is having sex with susan terrell James Woods messes with him and he jumps out of bed like an angry Seymour Skinner and like stands on the porch butt naked. And I'm like, sir, I've never seen you nude before. You are a brave character actor. So I know many I know many new things about M.M. Walsh after this film. You know, there's an interesting subplot here about how they kind of put the squeeze on Woods's character. His cousin basically wants him to prove his loyalty by killing a, a black radical who is in prison. It's watching Woods kind of develop just one little hint of a conscience, not a whole conscience, just a hint of one. I'm okay with stories like this where it's not about good versus bad. It's shades of shitty here more than anything. Yeah, it's kind of a mostly shitty guy who has a, uh, a moral dilemma. The cast makes it worth seeing. You know what uh, the cast does not make worth seeing? Oh, no. Here we go. It's a religious procedural of some sort called Monsignor. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I have killed for my country. I have stolen from my church. There is going to be an international financial scandal. I have loved a woman. You brought love back to me. You brought it to me for the first time, Father. I am a priest. Frankie Blondes presents Monsignor, rated R. Starts Friday at a selected theater near you. All right, this is the one. This is the movie that broke me and i may not recover for the rest of this episode i'm going to try to summarize the movie this is based on my 11 viewings of the film correct me if i'm wrong christopher reeve is a priest who's also a soldier who is asked by the vatican to run a black market scheme during world war ii but because he sometimes just looks like a soldier not a priest he starts fucking a nun who doesn't know he's a priest and he's torn by wanting to tell her, and then the Vatican makes him do some more shit. Let's put this in context, because Frank Perry was coming off of not a hit. I uh, And the writer, too, and I honestly believe that they were almost courting, like, hey, Mommy Dearest was bad, but it was, like, notoriously and infamously bad. Let's see if we can do that again. Because it seems like a campy premise, like, I'm a priest, and I'm having an affair with a nun, but she doesn't know I'm a priest, and that seems like there's high camp built into that. There is no pulse to this thing. Even within scenes, this thing just dies. Genevieve Bujold, who I will admit I kind of bounce off of as an actor, I don't get a lot from her, um, is the romantic lead here and just a quicksand of charisma. Just <laughs> The late, great, lovely Christopher Reeve. We, we spent an, almost an entire episode cooing and gushing over his great performance in Death Trap. And... This performance is not very good, and I say that 80% of it is not his fault. I honestly don't know what Frank Perry's aesthetic is here. I don't know what he's going for because there's so little pulse in individual scenes. 
first of all, Jason Miller appears as one of the priests in the film because you could only cast Jason Miller as priests, evidently. And there's a lot of familiar faces like Joe Cortez and Fernando Ray that pop up in the in small Robert Prosky. But, dude, there is zero pulse even within scenes. And this is what happened is I would start watching a scene and not have any idea what the fuck they were talking about anymore. And I'm like, if I can't even keep up with one scene, this movie's never going to work for me. Another problem is it's inept and sloppy, but it rarely, occasionally gets into laughable bad. I, I wanted laughable. It's just dry dull, whereas Mommy Dearest was kind of wacky dull or, you know, weird. If you're trying to make the point that that he's at the junction between these two organizations, the mafia and the church, and they are the same organization, basically, and he's the guy who sees that, okay, there's a movie in there, maybe. This isn't that movie. I have never seen a higher-end line of Sephora makeup put on an uglier pig than the John Williams score wrapped around this collection of random horse shit. Uh, all right, let's just move on to something that's slightly better. It's an obscure horror film called Trick or Plural Treats. When was the last time you went trick-or-treating? Trick-or-treat! Aren't you too old to be trick-or-treating? When was the last time you babysat on a Halloween night? Are you here, kid? Christopher, where are you? Peter Jason, Gillian Kessner, <gasps> and Chris Graver as Christopher. Special guest appearances by David Carradine, <gasps> Carrie Snodgrass, and Steve Rails back. Trick or treat! Next time, don't be so quick to open your door. <laughs> Director Gary Graver, after this film, immediately moved to hardcore porn. <laughs> Not kidding. Look it up. His next several films after Trick or Treats, which is about a a kid, by the way, his next several films were hardcore porn. Oh, so. have, I've I've never rooted for a horror movie kid to die more than I rooted for this one. To die. Wow. All right. Have you ever seen a movie where a kid does a really obnoxious prank and then goes, ha ha ha, you dummy. Ha ha ha. You fell for it. Ha ha ha. You're stupid. Now, that's kind of grating, right? Imagine that seven times. That's what happens in the first hour and 20 minutes of Trick or Treats. This babysitter, she falls for so many. It's like the boy who cried wolf, 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 wolf. She even mentions it, and it has no bearing on the plot because the pranks keep coming. And then eventually, the kid's psycho dad <laughs> breaks out of an insane asylum, comes to the house, and now the suspense is supposed to be this psycho might kill the kid, but I might not know it or believe it because he's pulled so many fucking pranks on me. First of all, I thought it was Kevin Teague who played the father, and it's not. It's, uh, what's his name? Peter Jason. And Peter Jason is a character actor you've seen before anything happens in this film. The opening scene of this movie is he's at home having breakfast, and he's just reading the paper by the pool, and his wife goes and answers the door, and she lets some dudes in who are going to take him to a mental hospital. They must have told him, we're shooting this real time. Guys, you got to get him out the front door. I don't give a shit how you do it. I'm just going to keep rolling until you get him out the front door because he fights them for, and I timed it, 
six hours. Six straight hours of real-time footage of him fighting them in the pool. The film is about 90 <laughs> minutes plus that six-hour sequence. He's he's not kidding. It, I mean, And the kid, I keep cutting to the kid watching, and it's like, that guy doesn't seem... He doesn't seem crazy. He seems a little angry that he's being incarcerated, but he doesn't seem as, as I would be if that's what, if that was my breakfast. Hey, here's your newspaper. And these gentlemen will be taking you to the mental hospital. Having never seen this before. Uh, and I dug it up and I'm looking at the cast and I think Carrie Snodgrass, David Carradine, Paul Bartell, Steve Railsback. I think each of them have maybe Steve Railsback. His entire role in this film is he's a dude who's dating the babysitter. And when she blows off his show to go work, he calls her a couple of times and he's obviously upset she didn't come to the show and he just wants to talk about his performance. That's it. That's his entire role. He's so good. I, I recommend that you if you if you have <laughs> access to trick or treats, I recommend you watch the first six hours and then you'll decide if <laughs> that staging of that scene won me over. I have to, I have to say I was with the director. I was like, I, cause this guy is crazy that he would let that go that long. <laughs> keep, keep talking to him, dude. Keep trying to use rational thoughts. <laughs> All right. Fight some more, fight some more in the pool. Don't make it easy for them. No, lay down. <laughs> so good. I would like to see if somebody could speed that whole sequence up and add the yakety sacks. I just, I just want to do the remake so that I can stage that scene with all the epic majesty it deserves. That's that's my goal now. Speaking of epic majesty. Okay, you know, we talked about how we did bonus episodes, and we just had Bill Hader on, and Bill picked some of his favorite movies from the 80s that people don't talk about enough. Mr. Hader picked this next film, and I would like to say I disagree. Let us now delve into Jekyll and Hyde together again. It's Jekyll and Hyde together again in the most audacious, outrageous comedy of the year. Jekyll and Hyde together again, and they're still crazy after all these years. I am the doctor! You need a doctor! Rated R. I am pretty sure that when you go to hell... It's a long, hot train ride, and this and The Incredible Shrinking Woman play on a loop. This is so much worse than The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Oh, I straight up hate this movie. I hate this movie. This movie seems to be satirizing something that doesn't exist. <laughs> they're, they're making fun of an entire genre that they invented so they can make fun of it. Cocaine culture is not a thing, and even though cocaine was very prevalent in the 1980s, it still was not an outward culture. I find it baffling that Mark Blankfield had a career after Fridays, because Fridays wasn't even the crack to SNL's mad. Fridays was awful, and this feels like a sketch that would have aired during the last half hour of Fridays, just the dregs of the dregs of the worst. And Mark Blankfield does seem to believe that cocaine by itself is funny. Just the idea of cocaine. The movie is about a much beleaguered, put-upon doctor creates a new formula in powder form, of course. When ingested through the nose, it turns this mild-mannered, beleaguered doctor into an over-the-top, coke-snorting Lothario, also kind of like a weird, pervert werewolf. And because it's the early 80s, and because foam latex and air bladder makeup was popular, they 
figured they had to put some in here. So we see things like his rings actually pushing up out of his fingers. Even their bladder makeup is shitty and knocked off. You mean that like Tim Thomerson, a fun character actor who has literally three scenes in the movie as a plastic surgeon, has a scene that was infamous when I was a kid. Uh, it was about a woman who comes in for um, a breast augmentation and uh, as if they're blown up with air and he blows up her breasts. And I remember being struck as a kid thinking, that's kind of an interesting effect. And, you know, I like boobs, but these are obviously gross. And it's on the back of the VHS cover, Drew. Like a lot of bad movies from the 1980s, this one ends with a musical number. It's just as long as the uh, taking the dad to the mental asylum sequence from the beginning of uh, Trick or Treats. Jekyll is invited to Switzerland to collect the Putz Puller Prize, which I thought was a little bit funny. And when he gets there, he just breaks into hide as a big musical number. Here's the defense that I will offer to this movie, and, and I will have a couple of examples. I think 95% of the Mr. Hyde stuff is awful, painful to watch. And as Dr. Jekyll, as the guy who is like the relative sedate person in a really insane comedy, he has a couple of bits that made me see the talent there. There's a really funny bit early, and this is a movie, this is probably the subtlest joke in the whole movie. His soon-to-be father-in-law is giving him a hard time, and they get into an elevator, and, and he grabs him. And he says, I'm saying this as a professional. Like, oh, my smog. I'm like, there's a funny bit. There's maybe three or four little bits like that throughout the rest of the movie. And the rest of most of it is just ugly and not funny. Now we move on to the final film of a filmmaker who died way too young. Drew, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about Fassbender's Veronica Voss. Ich werde sie retten. Ich wünsche dir viel Glück, mein Freund. Memories are made of this. Memories are made of this. Die Sehnsucht der Veronika Voss. Ein Film von Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Demnächst in diesem Kino. We just recently dealt with Lola, and uh, this is part of that same trilogy of films that Lola came from, and uh, this was the first film of his that I had ever seen. It sticks with me. It is the one that I think I come back to as if I'm trying to sum up what Fassbender is. It's just for people who thought Sunset Boulevard was too, went too easy on Hollywood. And I love that, that you can see Sunset Boulevard in this, and you can see uh, Marlena Dietrich in this, and you can see... Douglas Sirk in this and you can see a lot of earlier Hollywood in this and that to me is what Fassbender did so beautifully is Fassbender dealt with the reality of post-war Germany obviously loved and absorbed the lessons of 70s film but was addicted to Hollywood to glamorous classical Hollywood as well and all of that is in here I find that really beautiful and it's the thing that took me a while to get to with Fassbender is what that combination is because it's seedy there's a lot of CD in his movies, and a lot of it is dirty. Based on this and the few other films of his, I assume that he was, whether it's a blessing or a curse, he was able to see like the decay and the underside of anything basic or beautiful. Uh, this is about an aging former star who is uh, struggling with addiction and, and self-respect and, and getting trying to get back into the industry and, and meeting a lot of pushback and a lot of cruelty. 
It's about a German actress who is at the end of things and looking back at how she burned her life down and the choices she made that got her there. And I mean, that is enough. The, the idea that that's really it. And there's a journalist who she is kind of um, telling things to and who is electrified by the stories that she has and the life that she lived and is drawn to her. And he loves the people that have lived and that have had hardship and that have had suffering and pain. He and, seemed legitimately um, fascinated you know, you by say, flaws. Decay and beauty side by side, I think, is so much of, of his work. I am so excited about Berlin Alexander plots, which we're going to get to later in this, because I've never seen it. And I'm glad that I'm older because I don't think I got Fassbender when I first started watching his work. And it's crazy because he died by 36. So it's all young man fury. What, he made, what, 30 some films and he died at 36. And it's not just that he was prolific. It's that a lot of his films are still celebrated today. So we move from a film about an aging woman to a very young woman. There was a segue for you. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Stain. My name is not Corinne Burns. Oh, what is it? It's third degree Burns. I'm the lead singer and manager for the Stains. I was on board this film by the end of the opening titles, and man, it did not disappoint. This is a great movie. This movie is written by Nancy Dowd under a pen name. Nancy Dowd uh, was a phenomenal screenwriter. My favorite fact about Nancy Dowd, she wrote Slapshot, arguably one of the most <laughs> testosterone bro movies ever. Slapshot, don't put hair on your chest, nothing will. So uh, anytime I see a new film uh, that I haven't seen from Nancy Dowd, I'm interested. And this is great. It is a very simple movie about a young girl who has found herself an orphan. And she is completely aimless and rudderless, but is still a good, intelligent person who wants to start a punk band with her friends, including Laura Dern, called The Stains. That's it. There are so many things I love about this movie. First of all, Fee Waybill from The Tubes is great in this movie as the lead singer of a metal band that is on its last legs. And I love the tubes when they were on SCTV. They were always a great sort of guest appearance. But I didn't know Fee Weibel could act. And he is terrific in this thing. Like a has-been who's kind of a not, not cool, not gracious, kind of an asshole. And he's the old man compared to the younger artist. And it's so funny because you know Fee Weibel had to be like 32 in this. But he is already ancient compared to Ray Winston and Laura Dern and good God, Diane Lane. She's on fire in this movie, man. She and she is great. She is withering. She has with these comments that she makes. She is brutally honest. She is funny, difficult, confused. But she seems to be pretty good at the music thing. I just love like the running subplot on the local news where clearly the female reporter loves what's happening and the dude doesn't get it. And watching the arc of their story, which plays out in the background of the film, is very, very clever. This feels like a biopic. and It's not, but it feels like the writer and the director knew these girls. It speaks a lot to, I think, Dowd as a screenwriter and how she treated everybody 
in her films as interesting, whether they're playing a lead role or whether they're playing a background. There is a guy who is sort of the, um, I guess you call him the manager or organizer for the tour. He's got a moment where he finally just kind of snaps and he lays out his own struggle. And he's not even saying it to any one person. He just kind of is letting everybody in the vicinity know, all right, God damn it, this is who I am. This is what I've gone through. This is why you don't kick my bus. This is what I'm doing here. That is a movie unto itself. And that character is so great and alive. He is great. And you know who else is great? Very young Ray Winstone. Oh, my God, who is, I, I think, 11 years old in this. Stone sexy, like he knows what he's doing, and he is offended by Diane at first, but then gradually starts to realize she's a goddamn natural genius, and she has something he never will. He plays that fence really well, where it's, is he in love with her, or is he dangerous? Is he trustworthy, or is he trying to fuuck them over? I had always known the title. Uh, for many years, I thought it was an actual documentary about female rock bands or something to that effect. I didn't know it was a straight narrative. I think that uh, anybody who likes movies about rock music and about young people should check this one out. As much as I like Dowd's work, I'd just like to point out real quick, Lou Adler, who directed the film, this is a world that he knew. He was he started a record company in the late 60s that he ran until the mid-70s and then sold off. And so a lot of his movies, uh, I think, flirt with the world of rock and roll. He was one of the producers of Rocky Horror Picture Show. He directed this. And of course... Uh, also directed Up in Smoke. I think Lou Adler was a really sharp guy who had a lot to say about the world that he navigated. We now move on to a movie that I wouldn't recommend to a tumor. It's called Class Fucking Reunion. Is this or is Jekyll the worst horror comedy this month? And the fact that we have to ask is scary. Yeah, we're almost done. This, this, uh, I think we still have wacko left to go. Why is it so hard to combine horror and comedy? I think the problem is if you have a comedy in which horror happens, it ruins the comedy. But if you have a horror film in which comedy occurs, that can work. Shit, man, it goes all the way back to Abbott and Costello. One of the reasons Abbott and Costello works is because the scene where Costello is walking around the hotel room and the werewolf is in the room with him is genuinely scary for audiences. And so they understood that part of what makes comedy delicious in a horror film is that you have to be scared and then diffuse it by laughing, not the other way around. It's the the idea of something like Scream or American Werewolf in London or Cabin in the Woods. We're laughing at either movie tropes or our own universal fears. And then we are laughing at those. And when you're doing it the other way where it's like, Hey, we're kind of a yuck fest comedy that deals with murders. It's like, that's generally not that great. This is a laughless satire. It's not even a satire. It's a farce. I knew at 12 years old this movie was terrible, and I liked everything. I think Garrett Graham has the biggest part, and he does not get one laugh. Well, here's what infuriates me, because I've talked about the Groundlings as this great talent pool from L.A., uh, especially in the late 70s, and how you know the early Cheech and Chong films kind of pulled from that and used a lot of them. This is a Second City movie. This is a Chicago movie, and it's a part of what Second City emphasizes is character building and making sure that there's a base reality. I have the John Hughes script that this was based on. John Hughes is the credited writer, and he is right to have disowned the final film because I've read his script, and his script is not this. 
his script started from the idea that every high school yearbook, if you look at it, the stories that aren't being told are 50 times more interesting than the ones that were. And so you put those people back together 10 years later, and how weird have they all gotten? And that was the main drive of his script. And there was a little bit of a horror subplot, but it was far more a big idea that was then boiled down through character, just like vacation was. Vacation is just the American vacation that every family's gone on, but through a specific filter. You know, on one hand, it's like, hey, man, that's Hollywood. You got paid. Move on. And on the other hand, it's like, imagine that you're a screenwriter and you're you're moving up and you have this universally reviled comedy connected to your name. And it just must be so frustrating. Well, and especially because, you know, he was one of the few connections to the real National Lampoon. He helped define that magazine's sensibility. I'll tell you, there is no way John Hughes wrote this movie's four or five execrable exorcist jokes. It read more like the Marx Brothers in a slasher film. Like, that was the vibe in the horror stuff was... Jokes about blind women. Jokes about uh, oh, Dracula. Dracula yeah. jokes. Dracula period jokes. I mean, come on. It is the most base, ridiculous... Gar- and that's Jim Stahl, for God's sake. Obviously, they cast Stephen first because they were trying to pull in the Animal House crowd. And that was more than anything. What I imagine people felt burned by was National Lampoon... Animal House had done such a good job of establishing that as a brand. And the next two films that came out that had that name anywhere near them, even during the advertising phase, because in both cases, the magazine pulled its name as quickly as they could. But Joy of Sex and Class Reunion burned down every bit of goodwill that there was. Written by John Hughes, who disowned it. Directed by Michael Miller, who also directed Chuck Norris's Silent Rage. Who do you think is responsible for this movie being terrible? Barry Treasure? No. Do not fall for class reunion. It is garbage. I got no segue. I've got no segue except to say that this is an episode full of movies, full of people who had two movies out in a month. This is another one of those because this is the first of our Larry Cohen screenplays for the month. I, the jury. Mike Hammer, the great American detective. He's unbreakable. How could one man do all this? and still have time for five beautiful women, including a blonde, a brunette, the set of identical twins. How? It was easy. I, the jury. Clearly, this was an attempt to kickstart what they hoped would be, I think, a new Mike Hammer franchise of movies. Right off the bat, the biggest mistake they made was casting Amand Arsant, who, while he looks the part while he's sitting still, the moment he starts running or fighting or shooting he is the opposite of what i think of as a movie tough guy he is wildly miscast when he's behind a desk or conversing in an intimidating fashion he's fine but armando sante was not built for action and it makes me wish that larry cohen had not been fired from this film because i guarantee you larry cohen's version of this movie would have been a lot punchier and more colorful and energetic uh i don't even know the name of the guy who directed this uh, this one also features a f- cool supporting cast, all reading Larry Cohen's fairly interesting dialogue. Paul Sorvino's up in there, Alan King, Barbara Carrera, and the great Jeffrey Lewis. Uh, this is another one of those movies like Summer Lovers. How did 12-year-old me not know about this movie? Because this is sleazy. Uh, there is so much random, nonstop nudity in this film. It might have been part of why it sunk without a trace, because... I don't think if Larry Cohen had directed it, I don't know if it would have been quite this tacky. It might have been as cheesy, but 
I, I think he would have realized when these stories were written, we can modernize it without necessarily adding overt nudity, sexuality, raunch. Like, I, I think that Larry Cohen would have done this old, a little more old school. The, because everything's been moved forward, my camera was in Vietnam with a guy. That guy ends up dead. My camera wants answers. Eh, that's basically it. And the guy was going through some controversial sex therapy with uh, Barbara Carrera, who's a doctor, a sex doctor. Bill Conti, uh, who wrote the score for this, his Mike Hammer fucking theme gets quite the workout in this movie. There must be eight or nine sex scenes. And there's one with Barbara Carrera that I had to check my watch. It goes on so long. It's crazy. Uh, I will say this. Judson Scott, who uh, appeared earlier in the year as uh, Ricardo Montalban's uh, hinch dude in uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan, plays a psychopath here who is unleashed on women. I would imagine any woman who saw this movie would have had a real hard time ever dating Judson Scott because he is convincingly grotesque all the way through. I, the jury, is a film that I, the board, had no interest in watching <laughs> uh, my entire life, uh, even though I love Larry Cohen and I do like Armand Asante, and of course I love film noir, but I don't like clunky, modernized neo-noir, you know, where Body Heat and Postman nailed that vibe. It seems like a year later, we had a handful of people trying to do the same thing and kind of failing. I think this might be our most profane episode. L yeah. Uh, let's try to curtail the F-bombs. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. And let's try not to be profane while we talk about the film that killed Don Siegel. Jinxed. For Bette Midler. Blackjack. Life is a gamble. you? <laughs> Love is a crapshoot. I never feel cheap, buddy. Luck is a lady. That's why they call it gambling. And she's making a killing. Murder? Yeah, murder. The best Bedford comedy. Yeah! We did it! Jinxed about the perfect crime. Rated R. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Boy, talk about a title that is uh, appropriate. Uh, Bette Midler and Rip Torn are a couple of sorts. He's a rotten asshole. Oh, boy. And he's good at playing an asshole. But, man, is this character horrible. She has an affair with Ken Wall. They, they decide that they're going to try and kill Rip Torn. It's your film noir plot of help, let's kill my husband. But it's done in Vegas. I would like to nominate the bizarre digression involving Jackie Elam in this film as the weirdest sequence in 1982. What is that, dude? That the weirdest scene in 1982. It feels like somebody found a deleted scene from Cannonball Run and just threw it into this movie on a bet and went, no one will notice. It is crazy that this is her follow-up to the Rose, that they're like, okay, Bette Midler, obviously incandescent, amazing. She is a blistering dramatic actor. What do we do next with her? I know nobody would do this on purpose, but it almost feels like somebody... Like an actor would say, look, I'm due to make a shitty garbage movie that everybody hates. So let's do it on purpose right now and get it out of the way. This movie killed Don Siegel. And for those who don't know what you're talking about. Yes. Uh, director Don Siegel, one of our greats, one of truly one of the great filmmakers. This movie destroyed him like Hal Ashby's looking to get out. This was a movie that was just troubled from beginning to end. Every part of the production was a nightmare. And Sam Peckinpah finished the film uncredited and credits the late Don Siegel for uh, resurrecting his late career. But talk about again, talk about a weird. I was if I had this movie and I'm like, who's going to finish it? Mm. Peckinpah? The last name I would ever come up with. How could you get two great action directors to turn turn this in? 
Uh, everybody on the set reportedly hated each other. This was the height of Rip Torn being essentially impossible to work with. He is convincing as a nightmare, horrible human being in this. Midler has some moments by herself, and Rip Torn has a couple of moments. You know, it's like if you give two good actors a terrible screenplay, can they each pull three good moments out? And yeah, I guess they can, but man, you need more than that to watch a movie. Jinx is junxed. And now we are going to move from one of the most painful movies that we've sat through to one of those uh, moments where we get to talk about a genuinely transcendent work of art that happened to be playing in the next theater over. If you were lucky enough in October of 1982, you might have been in a theater and witnessed Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. I would have fallen asleep in 1982 watching Stalker and I would still be sleeping. This is a movie for grown-up sci-fi fans. Fact. Period. End of story. Underline. Uh, I hate to admit it, but I'm still kind of bored. I find this fascinating. I just recently got a chance to see a, a rough cut of a movie called Annihilation. And I think Annihilation is on a continuum with this film. You can even, if you break them down to just the basic sort of plot summaries, they're very similar. There's a zone. There's a mysterious zone. Something caused it. And within that zone, everything is different. And if you go in, you don't come back out. And it's about people who decide they're going into the zone. And that's really it. It's a guide, uh, a writer, and a journalist. Stalkers within the world of this film are the people that take you into the zone. And everybody who goes into the zone is looking for this, the center of it, this thing called the room, which if you make it into the room, you should get whatever it is that your heart most strongly desires. So clearly, we're not dealing with literal reality here. This is all meant as a, you know, metaphorical landscape. And and having said that, I find this movie to be a dream, this dark, disturbing dream. And from the very opening, what is clear is he wasn't just a director; he was also his own production designer. This is a movie that's very much about creating a world that just kind of pulls you in visually. And that you are either going to get lost in or that you're going to probably just bounce right off of. You can do both because I think the movie is both sublime and kind of dull. I think it's fascinating at moments uh, like Tarkovsky's Solaris. And at other moments, I think it's almost interminably slow. And that's his choice. And that was intentional. But I can only respond to how I felt about the art. And... Uh, I saw this in high school in, in a film class and, you know, feigned interest. And, and I watched it again last week and I thought, okay, as a kid, I see why you were bored by this. And as an adult, I am definitely more taken with the narrative and the, the avant-garde kind of symbolism of it. But if you watch this at a young age or even an older age and it doesn't speak to you, that's not a flaw on your part. No, not at all. I think movies like this are very much about... Are you willing to have this experience, which is immersive and quiet? It is a movie that was both written and directed and released and everything well before Chernobyl, well before any of that happened. Because to me, this feels like a, a reaction to living in a... Like Godzilla is a reaction to having been bombed, trying to make sense of something that horrific and that mind-bogglingly monstrous. You know, Godzilla makes sense. It is a very rational, I think, artistic reaction Stalker feels to me like a movie that was made in a country where there had been this kind of giant natural cataclysm at man's hands. And the idea that it all predates it is sort of fascinating to me. I find the world of Stalker very unsettling. Yeah, I'll give it that. But, you know, I just don't love it. 
You know, that's the weird part about something you admire and respect, but don't like. Between that film and our next film, we're talking about almost six hours of uh, screen time. And, you know, when you're asked to take that kind of a big bite of a movie, it is not unreasonable to expect certain things in return. Fitzcarraldo. Klaus Kinski und Claudia Cardinale. Der Film von Werner Herzog. Ein Film, wie ihn nur Werner Herzog erfinden konnte. Fitzcarraldo, demnächst in diesem Kino. Fitzcarraldo is, uh, we just talked about Burden of Dreams last month, and it is bizarre that Burden of Dreams basically played as a very long trailer for Fitzcarraldo if you manage to go see them both theatrically in America. I would say that Fitzcarraldo, which I did see theatrically, remains one of the most what-the-hell-is-happening-to-me experiences I've ever had in a theater. I never saw this in the theater, but I distinctly remember the Siskel and Ebert episode where they covered it, and I remember just watching the boat over the rapids, and I'm thinking, wow, and that was it. And then many, many years later, I saw the title, I saw the VHS or the DVD, and I went... Oh, that's right. I remember that from Cisco Niebert. Rented it, and it blew my mind. It is about an obsessed man who wants to build an opera house in the middle of the Amazon jungle. It's like a fascinating rumination on, like, the desire to create art. And, you know, well, one man's insane is another man's inspired. But it is a wonderful and powerful testament to the will of a human being. Whether you think it's insane or not is kind of beside the point. That makes it interesting. But what's most important is the strength of the human will, whether it's can you beat cancer or can you get a new job? All, that's what a lot of what we watch movies about is can this human achieve what they want to achieve? It doesn't bother me that it's a bizarre urge or, or a weird dream. I think that makes it a lot more interesting than a guy who gets out of law school and wants to be a lawyer. That's boring. A guy who wants to build an opera house in the middle of the jungle. That's interesting. Their collaborations, Klaus Kinski and, and Werner Herzog, are so remarkable, and they are such heroic works of art. Just what they wrestled onto the screen. Forget the fact that thematically and dramatically and character-wise, they are rich and dynamic. Oh, this thing and works as like a backwards adventure story. It works as like a cautionary tale about um, like human hubris. And there is something mad about the entire venture, which is what makes it glorious. It is a stunning, visually stunning movie. I, I, to this day, I remember the frames that I saw on that Siskel and Ebert episode. And it, the movie is just gorgeous to look at. And you go and you watch it and you think, okay, for the amount of time and money that he spent on Fitzcarraldo, most filmmakers go and make a movie uh, in L.A. for the course of six weeks. And he made his job so much harder. And that's fascinating to me. So these last three films we're going to do, to me, represent the best-case scenario of genre just treated well. I really enjoy how we're going to wrap October up, starting with about as good a film as we're going to talk about this month and a movie that I find the farther I get from its initial release, the more I respect First Blood. I want you to book this gentleman for vagrancy, resisting arrest, carrying a concealed weapon. They knew he was innocent, and they didn't give a damn. That's okay, Warren. Don't worry about the soap. He's tough. Just save him. Try. John Rambo. One man who's been pushed too far. Right on top of him. There's no way out of here except through us. He was hunted. Trapped. There he is! On the cliff! 
forced to fight back. Don't push it. Don't push it. I'll give you a war you won't believe. Sylvester Stallone. This time, he's fighting for his life. First Blood. Definitely one of Stallone's best movies. By uh, association with its gradually more stupid sequel line, I think First Blood kind of has got dismissed and forgotten as just like the movie that started the, the big Rambo machine. This is a thoughtful, insightful, intelligent, tragic, touching action movie about a quiet loner harassed by small town cops uh, and a tragedy occurs and he hightails it into the woods, into the mountains to escape and they give chase. That's what's wonderful is it is a great pulp way to deal with what we were just starting to grapple with on film, which was our relationship with our Vietnam veterans. There'd been the overt, let's run directly at it attempts like coming home and deer hunter, where we're going to just talk directly about Vietnam and, and what that experience is. This, to me, is so smart at the way it does it because it's really about the disrespect that came with, I went and did this thing, and regardless of what this thing was, now I'm back, and all I want is to go back to living as an American on my terms. And they just won't let him. It just breaks my heart. I had an uncle, my mom's brother, uh, who was in Vietnam, and he had a tough life and killed himself five, six years ago, and... You know, so when I hear the stories about Vietnam vets, it hits home for me. It, I agree with you. I think this is maybe Stallone's best overall performance. It's right up there with Rocky. And what I think is wonderful about it is that that sense of bruised pain and the sense that every time they poke him, he takes a step back and says, stop, just stop. He begs them not to make him into what he becomes by the end of this film. But it doesn't work unless you have the other half of that, which is Brian Dennehy. Oh, he's such a great bastard in this movie. And, you know, we talk about Ted Kotcheff directing, uh, you know, Split Image at the top of the film. This is Kotcheff's other movie from the month. And he and Dennehy obviously had a good rapport because you just look at those two performances and how vulnerable and wonderful he is in Split Image, especially when that tough guy breaks versus this, which is a tough guy who the more he realizes what he's done is wrong, the more he digs in because he cannot admit that mistake. It is one of the uh, earliest and most powerful uh, portraits of what they call now toxic masculinity. The, not, the inability to admit you're in over your head. The inability to admit you were wrong, that you pr misjudged somebody, that you're a bigot. That's what the problem is. He's a bigot. I remember thinking as a kid, what would have happened if he had just walked into town and the sheriff and the people had been friendly? And it is a fascinating action movie in that it has an, a morality tale to it, which is on paper, well, this Vietnam vet ran into the woods and attacked a bunch of cops who came after him. But there's a lot more context there. And that's what makes this movie so interesting is that, you know, he's pushed into doing horrible things. It's one of the two films from the 80s, though, where I wonder if they just left the original ending on it, would we think of it better overall? It's this and Fatal Attraction, where I feel like both films build to a certain ending that test screenings then robbed us of. And it's a case where commercially they probably made the right choices, but for the overall films, I think Rambo should have died. I really do. I do too. It's got to be Troutman's tragedy. Troutman has to be the one at the end of that movie standing there witnessing the horror of what has just happened. Richard Crenna is great. 
and I'm glad that he got this this franchise to sink his teeth into before he passed away. But he adds a lot uh, of class and authority to this movie. When you're doing a military themed movie, your your superior officers have to come off powerful. And uh, Richard Crenna is absolutely fantastic in this movie. I think the ending is a little bit simple, but without that ending, you don't get Rambo First Blood Part 2. You don't get Rambo Helps the Taliban in Rambo 3. You don't get Rambo Kills Thailand. I am not a big fan of the whole franchise, but I absolutely love the first First Blood. 300 days to Halloween, 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 300 days to Halloween. Silver Shamrock. That's right. All right. It's time. First, there was Halloween. Then the terror continued with Halloween 2. Now, Halloween 3. The night no one comes home. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Halloween 3. Season of the Witch. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers. All horror fans sit down. We're all going to gather around for a little story. It's about a filmmaker named John Carpenter. And he worked for a company called Universal. And they were going to turn his Halloween series into sort of like an anthology. Not unlike Tales from the Crypt tried to do with Bordello of Blood and Demon Knight. But what they found out in 1982 is that horror fans were already kind of enamored with the character of Michael Myers, and therefore they weren't too pleased with the completely Michael-free Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Now, I have said this, I said it as a kid, and I see, see people saying it every year in October. If this movie was just called Season of the Witch without the expectations of the Halloween franchise, I think it would have a better reputation. I agree with you. This is where... I part ways with most horror fans. Michael Myers, not a character. Michael Myers is a shark. The shark and Jaws. Right, but I mean, if you've established in your first two movies that your movie is about, it would be like Fast and the Furious 3 being about SeaWorld. I think the idea of taking the title Halloween and turning it into an anthology series is a great idea. And if horror fans had just been able to get their heads around the fact, maybe we'd have had a whole bunch of interesting different films instead of 19 movies about a fucking dude in a mask and his fucking increasingly tiny family. I don't care at all about the Halloween franchise, and I think it's a terrible franchise. This is what you might consider like a bad movie. This movie has a lot of flaws to it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Narrative. Editorially, it's just random. Anything could happen in the next scene, which is both kind of fun, but also a little bit confusing. This is a lot like Bentley Little Novels. It's a small town and there's a conspiracy and something shitty's happening and a perfectly normal person gets pulled into it. It's a, I like this horror shape. I like this general shape for horror films. And I think taken as a horror film, I just showed it to the, the boys while I was watching it for this because I hadn't seen it in a while. It played fine for them. They enjoyed it. They didn't really get why no other Halloween film broke the mold after this. Like That made no sense to them. They would just do it one time and then stop. But they thought it was fine. If anything, it kind of weirded them out, and they liked the fact that they didn't know what was coming, that it was a mystery. I like the idea that it's all built around this weird Celtic mythology that I don't, it doesn't totally work, but a lot of horror takes some historical point and then exaggerates it. This one does it pretty well, and it's... I don't get a lot of it, but it is still creepy. <laughs> I, I like this movie, and I, I think horror franchises in general are really stupid. And I think for the most part, when you bring a monster back over and over... 
it just ruins it. And I think Michael Myers is a pathetic character. I think he was a shark in the first movie, and that's it. All right, all right. Stop trying to bait this Halloween fans now. It's not. It's not baiting. It's just <laughs> that this is this was a turning point, and this is where this is where I have problems, which is we are so hung up on franchises and at some point we got sold this bill of goods that everything's a franchise and we're supposed to want them and i wish this had been a success so it would have killed it because i think that they are for the most part very bad for our business and bad for the genre well let me ask you this why on part four did they decide to go back to michael myers instead of just sticking to their guns this one didn't make money and one and two did so they panicked and they went back and when that one did whatever it did, and you know that that had to cost nothing. Four and five and six were all made for a plate of ham sandwiches. They're so cheap. We play it safe. People get exactly what they think they want, and we can just churn them out and make money. When you look at who directed four, five, and six, you see the talent pool they were pulling from. Nobody wanted to do that. This, at the very least, you could have brought different filmmakers in every time. You could have had Carpenter stay there as a supervisor. You could have launched some careers with this if you had played it right. Like, this could have been a real force of good for the, the genre, as opposed to cranking out shitty sequels that nobody all right, well, yeah, all right, but we're, was asking We're for. talking about this one. We'll get to Halloween 4 later. I wish that this had become that launching ground. Because I like, like Tommy Lee Wallace. It, it's his, but it's still definitely got some Carpenter sensibilities on it. So you can see, like, what, a, what the toy box could have been for other filmmakers. Try to describe this plot in one sentence. Sure. A mask maker tied to an ancient cult has a plan for how to create a mass human sacrifice on Halloween. It feels like five short stories that kind of connect. A, a, a screenwriter known as Nigel Neal, who wrote some Hammer films, a British screenwriter, he wrote the original draft and took his name off the movie because it turned out to be super violent, and he did not like that. I, I would love to hear an oral history of this movie. There are some inspired scares in this movie, legitimately creepy stuff, but... Plot-wise, it's also really random and clunky and all over the place. But I dig it. I, I dig Halloween 3. I love that people still remember the Silver Shamrock song. I like that you can't predict where it's going. I like that it has some over-the-top shocking moments, some that are scary, some that are silly. Uh, it might be half nostalgia for me, but I still like it. And even the horror press didn't know what to make of it. And I think that's a shame. You go back and you look at Fangoria or Fantastic Films or any of the, the horror press at the time, and I think they were baffled as to how to deal with it because they all had been conditioned the same way. So it has certainly been rehabbed to the point now where I almost feel like it is an overrated, underrated movie because it's a good film. It's a good film, but I don't want to sell it as it's phenomenal and we all fucked up by not loving it. No, no, it's not. It's an, it's an anomaly and it's an aberration. But what's interesting to me is that Aside from the first Halloween, of course, this is the most noteworthy one. Like when you end up every October talking about the Halloween franchise, people just talk about one, two, and three. The sequels are kind of just mashed together as one big glob. And the idea that, oh no, this anthology idea didn't take off. What a failure. But yet 35 years later, we're still singing the praises of the relative praises of Halloween three, whereas they looked at it as a failed experiment. Let's uh, let's wrap this up by going back to Larry Cohen one last time, but this time as a writer-director with the triumphantly weird Cue the Winged Serpent. Cue is coming. Cue is coming. Its name is Quetzalcoatl. 
Just call it Q. That's all you'll have time to say before it tears you apart. Q is coming. An Incan death god, giant lizard, is is flying around attacking everybody in New York City. That alone is great enough, but Michael Moriarty gives such a wonderfully odd performance that it's so fun to watch. He is crazy in this movie and delightful. And it is one of those cases where you can see a filmmaker kind of realizing over the course of a movie, what the hell have I signed up for and how can I get more out of him? You know, the guy had already written and directed several medium to small budget films and this is kind of ambitious because it's like, not only are we going to shoot in New York City again, but we're going to do like what looks like uh, an evil pterodactyl flying through the streets of New York, eating people out of like rooftop swimming pools. To do that on a budget is daunting. That first shot where it's flying through the city and you're seeing shadows go across the Chrysler building and stuff. It's great. It's a really nice stop motion shot. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a ton of Q action, but it. He ups the uh, like the conspiracy theorist weirdness of, of the Michael Moriarty, and he amps up the energy and the humor uh, in between the monster attacks. A lot of ho- monster movies are like, oh, it's, it's good when the monster attacks, and I was bored in between. He's a clever enough writer to realize, no, make the characters in between funny or interesting, and then people will be patient in between the monster bits. I think this might be my favorite Larry Cohen movie. It's right up there. I, I'm a big Larry Cohen fan, and a big part of what I like about him is that he writes for the budget that he has, and he also is aware of his audience. He knows that there's an audience sitting in that theater that he's got to keep entertained, and he's not there for himself. He's there for them. There's a crowd-pleasing quality to Larry Cohen that I really admire. He's a poor man Steven Spielberg, and I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. He really seems to have respect for people who like B-genre horror. There's a scene in this movie early on where Michael Moriarty wants to get a job playing piano at a uh, bar, and he goes for an audition. He says to the bartender, when he gets there, hey, somebody told me that you're looking for a piano player. And it's his girlfriend, Candy Clark, who's the waitress there. And the bartender says, yeah, who told you? And he looks over at her, and she's super excited, but she's giving him a don't say it was me, don't say it's me. And she's giving him the smile and thumbs up at the same time, and she's encouraging him. There's so much going on in that scene that I like those people, regardless of where anything else goes in the movie. And that, to me, is a huge win. Like, I like them. It reminds me a lot of Alligator, uh, the John Sayles, uh, Louis Teague, because it has a strong sense of humor, and it's good even between the gator bites. How great is the opening where the woman's in her office and the window washer who gets his head bitten off is outside the window? And there's a suggestion of the ongoing nature of, oh, my God, my little friend on the window is back and he's outside going, you know, you love me. And you get the feeling that's been going on for weeks. All of that is etched very quickly and very nimbly by Cohen. And that is his gift is he's smart about how he writes his people so that the big weird stuff works. If you are a fan of Larry Cohen, please keep an eye out for an upcoming documentary called King Cohen, which is absolutely fantastic, especially if you are a fan. Uh, But if not, it will make you a fan. But there's a story in King Cohen that is so worth the price of admission and might be one of my favorite filmmaker stories of all time. Not because of the story, but because then they cut to somebody else 
who utterly discredits the story, and it's beautiful. He said he did what? <laughs> yeah. No, no he, didn't, he didn't do that. Uh, and I want to just sign out by saying <laughs> Larry Cohen is a patron saint of the 1980s. I am extraordinarily grateful that I got to meet him in Chicago Sin Apocalypse last month, and the guy was an absolute delight. We got to try and get him on the show, because, man, I think he is a guy who, uh, when you talk about genre in the 80s, you got to include him, and you got to be respectful. Uh, so thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, it means everything to us. Your continued support, please, as we enter the new year, your reviews on iTunes and other podcasting outlets make all the difference in the world. You'll get new people to listen, carry the word for us. And when you do come back for the next episode, we've got Gary Coleman, Bugs Bunny, Michael Palin, Snowy River, James Cameron, and Cher. All in the same movie. Man, what else could you want from November? Oh, we could do Hell Night. Okay, next time. All right, next, next time. time. We'll right. do that November of 1982. I can sell with a cap the bag, in the, the bundle, the half load, nickel dime, quarter tray bag, piece of the pill. You just call it, and I've got it. Got loot, crank. Bombita's coat, bam, black beauties, cartwheels, yellow jackets.